of your Bibles, please turn with me back to that psalm that we read together, Psalm 2. We'll look at it. Let's just pray. Father, we just thank you again that we can meet in this way, that we have the freedom to own and to gather around your word. And our Father, we just ask that you will bless us as we listen to what you have to say to us this morning. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last time, um, we looked at Psalm 1, a really interesting psalm, the first psalm. We said that was like a really good introductory psalm to what the Bible has to say to us and what the rest of the psalmists have to say to us. Someone is not directly quoted in the New Testament. It is referred to, but it's not directly quoted. There is a link between the words of Jesus uh, when he spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, that's in Matthew's Gospel, when he preached what we call the Beatitudes, blessed is, and he went through those who are blessed. And that's what that psalm, that first psalm, was mainly around the contrast between those who were blessed by God and those who were condemned by God. And we said that that word blessed means happy. Now, I don't speak Hebrew, but I understand that the Hebrew word for blessed is osha. It spells O-S-H-E-R. And that translates directly as happy. So when you read blessed, the Hebrew word is happy. Well, it's not just being happy. It's the happiness that only God can give. And we have that illustrated in the verse we looked at last time. This example in Genesis 30, verse 12 and 13. This is Leah. And we read, Leah, the servant of Zippah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. Blessed. See that? And she went on to name her son Asher. And Asher is a derivative of that word that means happy. So when you read the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes, and you come to the tribe of Asher, Asher, happy, blessed. In Psalm 1, we learn that the blessed find delight in the law of the Lord. Now the law for them was a representation of the sacrifice that Jesus would make. It was a picture of what was about to happen. And it was to show them that this is how you approach God. And they had an illustration because Jesus hadn't come to die. But he would do. And every time they made a sacrifice, every time the priest went into the temple, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. It was all representative of what was about to happen and they could enter into that before it happened. That's why it was a picture, it was a shadow of the better things to come. Hebrews 10. This helps us understand that a little bit in verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, 
not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by some, never can by some sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who are drawn near to worship. You see, this is telling us the faith of those in the Old Testament, those Jewish believers, those Jewish faithful ones, the expression of their worship of God was done in the power of the blood that would be shed on Calvary's cross. That's why the blood needs to be shed. Why it needs to be dealt with the way it was dealt with. Why it needs, needed to be you know, put onto different implements in the temple. Their faith that was expressed in their worship of God was by the power of the blood that was shed by Jesus. So Psalm 1 speaks of the difference between being accepted by God and being rejected by God, all in that very short psalm. So Psalm 2, well, this is different. Psalm 2 speaks of rebellion against God. That's very interesting to see that comes so early on in the book of Psalms because it is a relevant thing that travels right through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Rebellion against God. But Psalm 2 is about prophecy. It's alluded to a number of times in the New Testament. And it's also directly quoted in the New Testament. It's known as what we call a messianic psalm because it speaks of the coming Messiah. I want us to start this morning with the words of Jesus brought to us by both Matthew and Luke. You go to both those Gospels, Matthew 12, verse 30, Luke 11, verse 23, it's the same words that they quote. And this is Jesus speaking. And he said, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me. We're thinking about making choices. And the choices we're looking at will have two different outcomes. So Psalm 2, verse 1 and 3, it starts with a question. It's good to start with a question, isn't it? Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. You know, the question here, it's, you understand the question when, when you know how it's said. You know, a teacher might point at you and ask a question. Ross, you know this. And you know, you've got to give an answer right away. Or it could be a question which is rhetorical where it doesn't really need an answer. It speaks for itself. Now, this here is like saying, how can this be? You're being offered something that you really need. 
How can you possibly turn it down and accept it for something that is less, less beneficial? Do you get that? You get the feeling of this question. Have you ever done that to somebody? You know, they don't understand what they've got. How can you treat it like that? Do you realize how much it costs me? <laughs> That's more apparent to a child, isn't it? You know, and the, the toy is there to be played with and not to be broken and taken to pieces. And it, hey, how can you do that? How can you do it? You've made it worthless. But you get the feeling right away of this psalm, God speaking. And this will follow through as we go through this psalm. I want us to, you know, he's attentive, but if you go to Acts 4, you'll read there about Peter and John. Now, this is after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and they are going out to preach the gospel, the good news. And they're imprisoned by the Sanhedrin. Who's the Sanhedrin? They are the religious leaders of the day, they're the bosses, they're the rulers. Those and along with the Romans, who between them crucified Jesus. And Peter and John's crime was to preach the good news of the risen Christ. Remember the speaking to Jewish people here in Jerusalem. It was their Christ, their promised Messiah. And they were preaching the good news about the Christ well the authorities didn't like that and after giving them a warning they told them not to preach the gospel while that was happening those other believers had gathered together and they were praying two of theirs had been arrested they'd been taken before the Sanhedrin who knows what was going to happen to them and so they prayed they gathered together and they prayed Acts 4 25 to 26 this is what part of what they prayed you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servants our father David why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. This was happening to them. So they prayed that prayer. They prayed what the psalmist had told them would happen. In fact, what God had told them through the voice of the psalmist would happen. The religious rulers, the Roman authorities. They saw Jesus as what? This is the good news. Yeah? As a threat to their way of life. John Calvin, he comments about those who rebel against God. Listen to what he said. And this is way back in the days of Calvin way back he said this all who do not submit themselves to the authority of Christ make war against God it's in vain for them to profess otherwise good truth there isn't it where to Calvin 
all who do not submit themselves to the authority of Christ make war against God, it is in vain for them to profess otherwise. As I've been going through this psalm, I've been reminded about different things, and here I'm reminded by, again, by um, Paul this time. And this is in Acts 14. You needn't turn to it, but it's a passage there, and I'm just going to read 14 and 15. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their... Let's go back a little bit. Let's go back and just find out what happened to them while they were in Lystra. They'd gone out to preach the gospel. While doing that, they healed a lame man. And the result of them healing the lame man was that the people saw Paul and Barnabas as being God's and that their gods had come down to be amongst them. And so they began to worship them. They had a desire to worship them. The priests of their gods were coming into the town and bringing sacrifices to lay before them. Because that's what they did. And then in verse 14 and 15 of Acts 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends! Why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless, worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You see, they were bringing the good news of Jesus and they're saying, why would anyone ignore it and turn to something that proves to be worthless? You see, they worship other gods that weren't gods. They were just idols. And that's what they did. And that's what they wanted to do when they saw Paul and Barnabas heal somebody. And what Paul is saying is, look, we're just like you. Give up all that. Don't come and worship us. Don't continue to worship your idols and other gods that are no gods. Worship the true God. The saying, we bring you good news of Jesus. Why will you ignore it and turn to something that in the end will prove to be worthless? If you read on in that chapter in Acts, Listen to what they did. To the bringer of good news. This is what they did. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stole Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Why? Why? Why were they against the gospel? As in the days of the psalmist, and as in the days of Peter and John, and as in the days of Paul, the truth is there was great opposition against the gospel. They didn't want God. They wanted other things 
that would just prove to be worthless. Back to Psalm 2. The psalmist says, speaking about what these people are saying, let us break their chains, throw off their shackles. This is strong language. What does it mean? It means that God is being treated as if he was insignificant and that what he offers is nothing more than an imposition coming into their lives that disrupts their way of life. So what did they do? We're looking at individuals and we're looking at nations here. We're looking at people in authority. We're looking at the man in the street. They direct their efforts to eliminate God. That's what was happening in the days of the psalmist, in the days of Peter and John, and in the days of Paul. You continue in Psalm 2, verse 4 and 6, you can title this, Who is it that the nations are against? So let's just read that together. Verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son today. I have become your father. The scene here moves to heaven. God speaks and God is speaking about his son. Strange to hear how God laughs. What does that mean? God laughs. You know, again, this is something you have to hear to understand what it means. Because a laugh can mean an awful lot of things, can't it? We can be laughed at, we can be laughed with. You know, it depends what it means. This is an expression of God's lack of recognition by these foolish men. The recognition that they have of him. The foolish way they look at him. Well, we can do that, can't we, when we see stupidity? <laughs> that's not laughing and mocking it. That's that's a oh, why 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 you know you see it and you go <laughs> oh no no God laughs in his anger. It's right for God to be angry because he's angry at the right thing. He wants you and I to be angry at sin because of what it is. See, the people ignore the evidence of who God is. They refuse to accept his authority. They go further. They ridicule his offer of salvation. What will God do in the face of that? He must show them that the God of love, who loves them, 
is also a God of justice. You just smashed that toy that I bought for you. How could you do that? <laughs> this is ridiculous. I got to punish you, bro. I gave you that. Because I love you. I paid for that. Because I want you to have it. And what have you done? Go to your room, no computer for the rest of the week. Is that a cruel dad? No, no. That's a loving father. See that? You gotta look at these things in the reality of life. You've gotta look at them through our human eyes to understand how God sees them through his eyes. You've gotta be the patient who's with the doctor. And you look at the things that he's saying through your eyes that you don't really understand and he's the one who knows it all and you have to put your life into his hands if you want that operation and that medical condition removed and that is like what we have here so we need to think about these things he speaks to them of his wrath he speaks to them of his judgment. You know, when people read these things out of context, they say, oh, he's a cruel God, how could he do that? When you put them into context, you say, how could he not do that? You know, God is a gracious God. He has made provision for them and us. He has provided a way of salvation many can't see it. Their eyes are closed. And in fact, most of them refuse to see it. You know, this is what Jesus came up against when he walked this earth. When he walked amongst them, he spoke about closed eyes and hearts that were turned against him. When Paul preached the good news of who Jesus is, and what he's done for them in the synagogue in Pisidia, Antioch. He referred back to the words of the second psalm. Listen to this from Acts 13. Paul said, and he's speaking to Jewish people here. He's in the synagogue. He's speaking to his people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children. By raising up Jesus, as it's written in the second psalm, he actually says that. You are my son, today I have become your father. It's a messianic psalm. You know, this is evidence that we can turn to the psalms because they were quoted by those believers of the New Testament. And Jesus also quoted the Psalms. In Acts 13, Paul warns them on the basis of what they know to be true. They are Jews, they are in the synagogue. They know about the Messiah. They are waiting for the coming Messiah. They are waiting for the Christ. And Paul is telling them about him. And they won't listen. 
And he says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your day that you would never believe, even if someone told you. You are my son. Today I have become your father. See, quote from the psalm, he's speaking about Jesus. And you're being told in your day now, you won't believe it. This is tremendous. This is God. This is God coming down to earth. This is God being truly God and taking on humanity. Jesus. What did he do? He died. And it's happened. And the evidence is there because he rose again and sent it back to heaven. And you won't believe it. See, he's speaking about Jesus. Hebrews 1 verse 5. But to which of the angels did God ever say? Here's the quote from Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have become your father. And again, the writer of the Hebrews is going to refer to that psalm again in chapter 5 and verse 5 of Hebrews. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Got some quotes in this psalm, haven't we? We're only up to verse 8. Verse 8 and 9, the importance of who the Son is. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. This is the psalmist speaking. The Son will be the one who administers justice. And justice must be done. We've already said a God of love has got to be a God of justice. Otherwise, he's not a God of love. <laughs> he tells us both sides of the coin. Revelation 12, verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule by the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. We've looked at this in Revelation. It's the gospel in a nutshell. It's more than the gospel. It's the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. God's son. <coughs> Revelation 9.15 Coming out of the mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Again, a quote from Psalm 2 about God of love. 
who's the God of love, the God of salvation, is the God of judgment. Here's a question to finish with as we go through worlds of close. Why do we have the second psalm in the Bible? Why? Because every word of it was relevant to those in the days of the psalmist. <clears throat> okay, that's why they had it. Why, why, why is it called in the New Testament? Because it was relevant to those in the days of Peter and John and Paul the Apostle. Why do we have the book of Revelation in our Bibles? Because things between God and man have not changed. The same question is being asked today as it has been and as it always will be until the Lord returns. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Towards the end of the psalm, 10 to 12, the same warning was given then is the warning that's given today. Therefore, the, you kings, be wise, be warned. You rulers of the earth. It's Revelation 2, 26, 27. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. The one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received the authority from my father. The same advice is given, verse 11 and 12 of that song. Fear the Lord. Serve the Lord and fear. Serve, let me read that again. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. The fear of the Lord is to know who he is, to celebrate his rule, is to rejoice in what he's done for you and for me. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, submit to Jesus or suffer God's wrath. Hebrews 12, verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Just as we consider these things and as we go to a close, you know, experts tell us that on average, we make 122 informed choices every day. They've done, I don't know why they do these things, but they do. And sometimes they are of interest. But they tell us that we all make 122 informed choices, which means things that we know about and have been told about. Okay, not just random. Things like 
Shall I get up or have another half an hour in bed? What shall I have for breakfast? What will I have tea or coffee with? Well, I haven't even gone out of bed yet. <clears throat> you know, constantly being told that whatever we decide could bring life-changing results. Too much sleep is bad for you. informed decision before you get up, you know. You know the results. Tea and coffee can increase your heart rate. It can cause dehydration. And a full cooked breakfast, keep away from that. <laughs> and if you do have it, dispense of the bacon and, and, and the black buttons, you know, stick with the beans. This morning, God's word for what God is telling us we have the most important life changing choice that we will ever be called to make ever you see the depth of how God thinks to the futility about what we think Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. You know that verse, John 14, verse 6. This is a statement. And what Jesus is saying, if you want to be accepted by God, then you must come to God <clears throat> through him. The only true way that leads to life. That's what he's saying. That is the statement that Jesus is making in that well-known verse that many people will be able to quote and not fully understand what it means. Or at least refuse to understand what it really means. Jesus also said, another verse, then it's understood. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. A lot of people remember that verse from Sunday school, maybe have never been to church since. Jesus is sounding a warning in that verse. He's saying most people will reject or ignore me, and they will choose a way that will turn out to be their downfall. We have these two things summed up in what probably is the most quoted verse in the Bible, and you know what I'm going to say. And if you watch a lot of football, you will see it sometimes held up on a placard. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Two things as we close. The gift of God is to accept Jesus as your Saviour. That's by the grace of God you don't deserve it. To refuse his gift is to face God as your judge. Father, we thank you for your word. We 
thank you for the truths that are held in it. We acknowledge before you that we don't always understand it, but Lord, help us through it to be able to acknowledge who you are. Acknowledge what you've done. And to accept what you have done for us. We're going to sing our final hymn, which is 579, 579. Restore, O Lord, the honour of your name in works of sovereign power. Come shake the earth again, that men may see and come with reverent fear to the living God whose kingdom shall outlast the years of the stands. <laughs>